How many have heard the expression, or maybe used the expression, the devil made me? <laughs> Did he? <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, we think, we often give Satan the credit for things Satan doesn't do because we have that nature within us. We have that bent toward rebellion uh, in each of us. And so we oftentimes give Satan the credit for things that he's not doing, and we give God the credit for things he's not doing. Uh, we should give God the credit in everything, but we have volition. God has given us volition. And Satan is still at work. Uh, he hasn't given up. Uh, it, you, you know, you'd think somebody, if he was a sum total, the Bible tells us he was a sum total, um, he fillest up the sum is the way the King James uh, translators put it, but we would say he's the sum total of created wisdom and beauty. So no creature was ever created with more wisdom or more beauty than Satan himself. Uh, Lucifer before he rebelled and now he's known as Satan uh, to us. But who is omniscient, omnipresent um, in Scripture, all-powerful? God. Is Satan all those things? So Satan's not omniscient, he's not omnowing, he's not omnipresent. Satan can only be in one place at one time. So I dare say we probably, none of us have ever encountered Satan. Uh, we don't need to. In one sense, we could think of Satan as implanting in Eve and Eve's mind and then Adam's rebellion, uh, a desire to take their eyes off of their uh, all-sufficient one, off of the one who created Adam and Eve from Adam and look toward themselves. Uh, you will be as gods. And they took their eyes off of the one who would be everything to them and they began to look at themselves and man has been looking at self ever since. Self, whether we know it or not, is on the throne of each of our lives because that's who we are in the flesh, in our fleshly makeup. Self is on the throne in our lives. We serve self above all things. And we gravitate not naturally toward, away from self and toward others. We gravitate naturally toward serving self. Uh, it's not evolution as we be taught by man today. It's devolution as we go downward. But what part does Satan have in your life today? What part does Satan have and how has he played uh, his battle strategy, we would say, uh, throughout the pages of history? Uh, now, I've, this is not all inclusive. You can think of some on your own. But let's go back. I can make this thing, oh, I, you have to turn it on. It's strange, isn't it? <laughs> Let's take a look at Satan's battle strategies down through the pages of time. And I've come up with some. You may come up with those of your own. But these are very interesting battle strategies because Satan didn't want to be different from God, did he? Did he say, I'll be so different from God, you'll spot me because I'll be ugly? I'll be pink colored and have pointy ears and be there, the guy with the pitchfork? He wanted to be just like God, so... He's the sum total of created wisdom and, what was the second word? Beauty. So we should look for him to counterfeit God, and we should look for him to go contrary to what God told him the very first time that he, he planted that seed in Eve, that she could be as God's. Her and Adam could determine their own right and wrong. They wouldn't need God to do that for them. Uh, they could become their own suppliers. And from that point on, Satan could, in a very real sense, sit back and watch mankind go down the hill that their now corrupted minds would take them. So he doesn't have to cause a lot of things to happen. He can watch uh, the, the progress of man go ever downward. And you say, well, 
but look at history. Haven't we, the Puritan age, didn't we go this way and then the pendulum swings back this way and then we go back that way? But if you'll notice that it swings ever lower each time it swings. So it's not evolution, it's devolution, the devolution of mankind as we work our way downward. Uh, we need God <laughs> and thank God for His grace in meeting our need. And so let's take a look at his strategies from day one and see how he's operated. And I've come up with several. You, like I said, you'll come up with your own so that we can arrive at how he's working today. How is, what is Satan's battle strategy for this age of grace, the age of grace we're living in right now? How is he working? Where well, you're going to find that every time Satan, every time that Satan tried a strategy, God countered that strategy. And we'll see that as we go through some of these. For thou hast said in thine heart, now this is uh, um, speaking about Satan actually, I will ascend into heaven. Where was he when he said I will ascend into heaven? This is, what he, this is his rebellion right here. So where was he before he rebelled? Have we not been taught that he was in heaven with God? And that he rebelled and God cast him down to the earth? That's, that's the Hebrew prophetic perfect tense, which means that's not something that's already happened. That's something that will happen midway through the tribulation period when Michael and his angels do battle with Satan and his angels and they are cast down to the ground. That hasn't happened. Satan has access to the stellar realm today and he has access to the atmospheric realm today. The two heavens, we see three in scripture. One is the heaven, the third heaven, where God's throne room is set up. But if Satan was perfect in all his ways till iniquity was found in him, the Bible tells us, and this was the iniquity. He was perfect in all his ways till iniquity was found in him. And this was his iniquity. He said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. Where was he when he was perfect in all his ways? Right here on planet earth. Because God's throne room was once located right here on planet earth. But God can't dwell with iniquity. He can't look on sin and let it go unanswered. So if God can't dwell with iniquity, somebody had to leave what used to be the throne room of the living God. Somebody had to leave the earth. Did Satan leave or did God leave? Where's God's throne room today? The third heaven. God left. And from the point that God left, God initiated his plan to take back what rightfully belongs to him, which is this planet, which is why God's interested in planet earth. Why would he put a creature here called man in flesh himself through his son, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then die here for the sins of a creation he put here? What about the billions and billions of other places throughout the heavenly realm? Why is he so interested in planet earth? He was here at one time. And Lucifer's rebellion was, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be different from or just like. Just like the Most High God. So the world would have us think he's the evil looking, devilish looking creature that we would spot in a second. But you wouldn't spot him a second because he's transformed into an angel of light. And his ministers into ministers of righteousness. So this was his rebellion, and we know he began working contrary to God in the garden 
with Adam and Eve, with Eve specifically, and then through Eve, Adam. And I call it Operation Deception, Alienation. God created man. God said, Adam, take possession, take dominion. Another way of saying that would be, Adam, rule for me. Rule in my stead. Why? God was here ruling. And the crowning achievement of the angelic realm, the anointed cherub that covered God's throne room, rebelled. And God set up his, his throne room in the third heaven. And now he puts man down there. He puts man on the earth, Adam, and says, rule for me, Adam. Rule in my place. Well, do you think Satan's going to like that? Because when God left and set his throne room up in the third heaven, Satan thought he owned the earth. He thought this was his real estate. This was his place of dominion. This was his place of governance. What does Paul call him even today? The prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. He thought this rightfully belonged to him, which is why uh, Satan could take Christ into the wilderness and tempt him and say, look at all these kingdoms. Uh, uh, you did bow down and worship me and I'll give these to you into my hands. They've been given to give to you. But they weren't his. That piece of real estate, this planet belongs to God who designed it, and especially that special piece of real estate he gave to his nation belongs to him, and Satan would do everything to keep that from coming about. So in the garden, when he said, Adam, you rule for me and you be, you be above everything that lives is into, into your, your dominion. Everything that creeps on the earth, everything, everything that, that is alive, you're in charge of. Did Satan like that? So Satan has to operate against God and he has to deceive the woman he put here knowing she would reach the man through him. And I call it Operation Deception Alienation, approximately 4004 B.C. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. So Satan began using Scripture. And then he went contrary to Scripture. But he began with Scripture. Did God not say? Because he knew God said they couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He began using Scripture, but then he corrupted what he began with. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now we've turned that into an apple. We have no idea what it was. <laughs> no one has any idea what it was, but we've, we've talked about it being an apple. Um, I doubt that was what it was. But whatever it was, she, they were forbidden to eat it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was not deceived, Paul tells us. He knew full well what he was doing. He knew he was defying the Most High God. He knew he, he was rebelling, and he willfully rebelled. And just like we appoint today, uh, we elect a person today to represent us in, govern, in, in government, God elected Adam to represent the human race in Adam's decision in that garden. Uh, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So both of them took their eyes off of God. 
they could be as gods and began looking at self and all mankind has been focusing on self ever since. So if you think you're not, uh, somebody's deceived you because we all are. Uh, far more than we should be, but we all are looking at self. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world of men, and death by sin, and so death passed upon how many? All men, for all, for that all have sinned. Uh, all have sinned, Paul adds to that by saying, for all have sinned, That's, is that past tense? But then the Holy Spirit changed the verb tense. Because Paul went on to say, all have sins, sinned and all are continually, constantly, evermore, coming short of the glory of God. So none of us measure up to the righteousness belonging to God. Not a single one of us. Uh, so did God divinely intervene and counter the strategy that Satan employed there? And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It, the woman's seed, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So God put Satan on notice right there that the seed of that woman was going to destroy him, actually literally crush his head. The woman's seed would destroy Satan. So where's Satan going to you know, um, gear his or aim his strategy from there, that point on? To the seed, <laughs> to this seed. He doesn't want that seed to ever come about because the seed of the woman would destroy him. So he employed Operation Agitation Assassination right there. And that was about 3875 B.C. Guestimates. What was the Assassination Agitation Assassination? What was the, who was the woman's seed? Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So now... The first seed of the woman is Cain, according to the verse here. It's Cain. There's a way of Cain, by the way. But would Satan want Cain to be that seed that was going to crush his head? And he definitely wouldn't want Abel to be that seed that was going to crush his head, would he? Would Satan be omniscient enough to know the future? No. He doesn't know the future. God does. Satan doesn't. So... Satan can't allow for, Adam, for, for Cain and Abel to go on as they were without any inter intervention. So Satan's challenge. Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Now, Abel is gone. And Cain's a murderer. So the sin is evident there. Can either one be used as the seed that's going to crush Satan's head. So God wasn't through divine intervention. <laughs> For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now some think that <clears throat> a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, was in place right there. Because... What did Abel bring to God? The first fruits of the flock. What did Cain bring to God? 
the fruit of the earth, but not the first fruits of the earth. Go back and look. It wasn't that God was happy in establishing an animal sacrifice at that time and that Abel brought the animal sacrifice. Abel brought a sacrifice and he brought from the first fruits of the flock. He bought, brought to God the very best that he produced. Cain didn't. He just brought from the field. So it wasn't that God didn't like the fruit of the field, but he loved the animals. That wasn't the case. God designed it all. Abel brought the best he had. Cain brought just a sacrifice. So Cain wasn't serving God and worshiping God with everything he had. But God knew about that all along, and he calls Cain of the wicked one. Divine intervention. Did God counter that ploy? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. Now the seed line's a totally different seed line, isn't it? Now it's going to come through Seth. For God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So do you see Satan's attempt and God's intervention? God countering Satan's battle tactic? But Satan wasn't done. Did Satan learn anything by this? Or was Satan still in his pride thinking, I can, I can get this, I can, I can take care of this issue of having my head crushed by the seed of the woman? Then came Operation Infiltration Degradation. I'll infi infiltrate the seed line and corrupt the seed line so the seed line can't be used. Now there's a lot of debate over the, uh, the sons of God, the angelic realm that left their first estate coming into the daughters of men as to whether that was the angelic realm, the corrupt angelic realm, um, or whether that was... Uh, you know, Seth's seed coming against uh, the wrong seed. We can go on and on with that. It makes no difference, really. It was an attempt to degrade the seed line, to infiltrate it and degrade it so the seed line, the seed of the woman, would not be able to crush his head. Israel had a battle with the giants in those days. There were giants, Nephilim, in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in under the daughters of men, and they bear children to them. The same became mighty men which are of old, men of renown. Why the renown? They were gigantic men in comparison to other men of the earth. Did these giants um, resist Israel's journey into their land? Yes. You see uh, Og, the giant Og, in, in the land. Well, see, I think we got it here. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains and darkness under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So whatever these angels did, whether it was men or whether it was angels, really isn't the issue. The issue was it was Satan's attempt to corrupt the seed line. So the seed line could not be used to produce the one, the seed that would crush his head. And so as the Israelites were going up to cross uh, the River Jordan and go on into their land, they had to fight King Sihon and King Og. And if you look in Scripture, they were giants. Those were giants resisting Israel's journey into their land. And... Moses defeated them. But where were those giants also located? In the land itself, which we have Rephraim and Anakim. You see those in the land themselves. 
now you know where Goliath came from. <laughs> he was of that giant uh, lineage. For only all king of Bashan remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof of Og's bed. That's 13 to 14 feet. And four cubits, that's approximately six feet, the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. So this is a, this is a, a man that's a, a superman in terms of physical appearance and, and a build. Whoops, see if I can. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we smote him until none was left to him remaining. So Moses took care of those giants as God allowed them to go into the land. But why were the Israelites afraid to go into the land to start with? Remember they sent some spies into the land? What did they find when they went into the land? They found those giants. They said, they make us look like grasshoppers. And so uh, 10 of the 12 spies said, we can't go in there. Even though God said, I'll give that to you. Go in there, you'll defeat them. So... In the land, they met the Rephaim and the Anakim. They didn't want to go into the land because there were giants in the land. You see Satan's attempt to infiltrate and degrade the seed line by mixing uh, with, with the Israelites. He even told them, uh, when you go in there, kill every living thing. Kill everything that breathes, whether it be infant, animal, uh, adults, women, children. Kill it all when you go into the land. Because if you don't, now why would God do that? Was he a hateful God? Did he hate those people? No, not at all. But he knew something, having omniscience, he knew something about the people in the land. He knew that no matter what he did, said, or whatever occurred, they would never accept him. They were anti-God. They would naturally be anti-Christ down the road, but they would be anti-God. And if they allowed those people in the land to live, those people in the land would turn the hearts of the people of Israel against the one God and toward serving their false, their fake gods. So Israel was told to destroy everything. Did they do it? They took spoil. They began to mix with the people. They began to marry, intermarry with the people. And sure enough, their hearts were turned toward the idols, uh, which was a horrible thing and against the God of but here's where you run into, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines. Here's where you run into the giant in the land that was destroyed. And we know who that was, Goliath, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, nine foot nine inches tall. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. Now that sounds strange. He wasn't covered in letters. Uh, the mail... The word male uh, is a Greek word meaning metal scales. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. That's 90 to 125 pounds of armor he was wearing. And he had greaves. He wasn't grieving. <laughs> he had greaves, the Greek word meaning armored boots of brass upon his legs and a target or a shield of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 17 pounds, just the head of the spear alone. And one bearing a shield went before him. So he was well clad in the armor necessary to survive this battle. And Israelite army stood on one side, and the Philistine, or Philistine as some people would say, army, on the other side um, of the creek bed there. 
and no one was willing to go out and face Goliath. But the young man, David, was willing. And he said, is there no one? Is there no one that, that serves God and serves God's purpose? My loose paraphrase. Then said David to the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear. Watch God intervene with this attempt. And with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. So David went in the name of the God of Israel. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. And David beheaded Goliath. So you see, Israel, through God's intervention, allowed to defeat uh, the giants in, uh, in the land that were keeping Israel from going into the land to degrade the seed line um, so that this God couldn't use that seed line. David and his forces slay the remainder of the giants in those passages right there. So if you take those passages down and look them up on your own sometime, you'll see that they defeated the remaining giants. There were no giants left after that. Satan wasn't finished. <laughs> he tried Operation Extermination and Annihilation. We have to get rid of the seed line altogether, not just degrade it. God countered that. We have to now eliminate the entire seed line. You know, there's six instances in your Bible where the entire seed line, the house royal, the seed royal, was brought down to one remaining person. Everyone destroyed. Everyone destroyed in the line that God would use to bring forth the seed but one God preserved. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to Abraham's wife, Sarah, she was barren. Why was she barren? This would be about 1913 BC. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bare him no children, and she had in handmaid an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. Divine intervention. But by covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. So Satan could do what he could through barrenness. Did it work? Did God intervene? He opened uh, Sarai's, Sarah, he opened her womb. Now Isaac's wife, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now Isaac's wife was what? Barren. 1804 B.C. roughly. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Divine intervention. The Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Doesn't God intervene with every tactic Satan tries to employ? going to be interesting when we get down to the tactic he's employing in this age of grace. Now Jacob, the one whose name was changed to Israel, through whom the twelve tribes would come, isn't interesting that his wife Leah was barren. So all this was chance. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Divine intervention. And God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. That seed line is going to continue. And Satan's not going to destroy the seed line, no, no matter his numerous attempts to do so. How about David himself? Did the seed royal Christ not come from the line of David? There were 14 attempts on David's life by Saul, who David loved dearly, King Saul. And you could look at all those attempts as Saul went after David to kill him with a vengeance. Saul could play the harp and ease Saul, I mean, uh, David could play the harp and ease his mind, ease Saul's mind. But there were 14 attempts on David's life. 
They're all sitting there in Scripture. Divine intervention. Moreover, will I appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before times. And as since that the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Now he's speaking to David here. The Lord's speaking to David who Saul tried to kill through 14 major attempts. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, David, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. So David's told here that God's not going to make a house. David wanted to make a house for the Lord, remember? He wanted to make a temple for the Lord. But here, the Lord's not saying, I'm going to make a house for you, David. I'm going to make thee an house. David himself is going to house the royal, the seed royal. It's going to come through David. It's amazing that God goes on in what I think is the most beautiful prayer in all of Scripture uh, to tell David what he's going to do with him forever. Establish through his lineage the, the royal seed line and protect David's lineage forever. Uh, he tells David all the glorious things that are going to take place to David. And David then delivers that beautiful prayer when he says, Oh God, who am I that you would do these things for me? Did he choose David because David was a, a performance perfecter? Did he choose David because David was just a man? He called David a man after his own heart, didn't he? But that prayer, that establishment from God to David forever, and David's prayer in thanksgiving to God, and how could God do this through him, came before David sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband slain. So God didn't choose David because of David's performance. It was never David's behavior why God chose David. God knew about David's belief. In spite of his behavior, God knew about David's belief. He's never chosen anyone based on their behavior. He's chosen to use people based on what his foreknowledge told them would be their belief, their faith. So God's going to turn David into a house. And through David's lineage, that seed's going to come that's going to destroy Satan's head. Do you think Satan then wanted to keep that seed line going or destroy the seed line? Wholesale genocide. Six attempts Satan made in your Bible to destroy the seed line all the way out. Pharaoh in the days of Moses. And Pharaoh charged all his people saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Do you see Satan's hand in this? Annihilation, extermination. Let's, let's get rid of the seed line. Six attempts. King Jehoram kills all his brothers, and their father gave them great gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things with fenced cities in Judah. But the kingdom gave heed to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword and divers also of the princes of Israel. Here's your third attempt. And the seed line was brought down to one person. Here's your third attempt. Ahaziah's mother, the queen, kills all the royal seed line but one. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. But 
Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. One person remaining of the seed line. God was not going to allow Satan the victory over the seed line. King Herod decrees the death of all male children. When? Approximately A.D. 02. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother. Flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod shall seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Seed line destroyed. One preserved alive with God's intervention. Because it was through that seed that Satan's head would be crushed, humanity would be saved. And he would become the supreme ruler, the monarch of both the heaven and the earthly realm. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men as to when that baby would be born. That didn't work. So Satan employed another tactic called corruption religion because the Jews were given what? The law. <laughs> and so Satan used that as his attempt for ye have heard of my conversation, Apostle, the Apostle Paul would write, in time past in the Jews... Religion, that's not a good term. Religion's not a good term, the way it's used there, because it, we, it comes from the Latin roots re and ligio. Re, back again, repeat, over again, over again, over again. And ligio, which we get our English word ligament from that. And what does a ligament do? It binds. So religion is man's attempt to bind himself back to a God who keeps getting angry over and over and over through his what? Performance. <laughs> That was Israel's religion, and Paul was steeped in it. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Satan was in his heyday when Israel's trying to perform sufficiently to merit God's righteousness because Israel, Satan knew they couldn't do it. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That was a pharisaical bunch in Israel. But Satan's involved in all of this through the minds of fallen, the fallen minds of men to destroy or corrupt the seed line so that it can't be used to crush his head. Then came Operation Subversion and Temptation. You know what that's all about? Christ is born. The seed is born in Bethlehem. The seed arrives. Emmanuel, he was to be called, meaning God with us. For unto us, Isaiah prophesied, a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Wait a minute. Satan thought the government would belong to him. And the government of the earthly realm was his to own. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. By the way, you'll see all these are in capital letters in your King James. 
and the, there was no capitalization in the Greek or the Hebrew. The, the writers and the translators had to add those capital letters, and they gave everything that, that Christ would be called a capital letter. Satan tests Christ now, because the seed's born, isn't he? The seed's born, and his name shall be called God with us. You think Satan liked that? Now the seed's there. Satan's got to go after the seed himself now. Uh, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread, Satan said. Christ's response, but he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Christ himself intervened. Satan tests Christ a second time, the lust of the flesh. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy feet against the stone. Christ's response as he answers that, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He didn't tempt him in the way we sometimes think of temptation. Christ really wanted to do that, but he was fighting off that temptation. He was testing. That word tempt is test. He was testing Christ. So he attests him with the pride of life. Matthew 4, 8, 9. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world. Well, who had left and set up his throne room in the third heaven? And Satan was the god of this world and still thinks he owns it and still thinks he holds a title deed to this planet. And the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Christ's response then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and in him only shalt thou serve. Christ responded. Divine intervention, we could call it. So, Satan tried operation possession and domination with men because it wouldn't be only Christ the King. God would reestablish his rightful rulership on the earth through a king and a kingdom, that special treasure peculiar treasure unto God which be, would be the kingdom of Israel, the, the nation Israel. So he's got to keep that from happening now too. Demonic possession. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Not some and not just ear problems or sight problems. All that were sick were healed. And they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. Demonic possession. Divine intervention. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to... Yes. Satan knows that possessing humankind won't work because Christ gave them the ability to cast those devils and prophecy says the evil spirit will be cast out of the land. There won't be any evil spirits in the land. So Satan's not finished. The king is there. Why not try Operation Crucifixion Elimination? And you know what that's all about, don't you? But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests, the representatives of the nation, answered, We have no king but Caesar. Divine intervention. Watch God counter. He is not here for, he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. You see all the tactics Satan has employed down through the ages? And you see the divine intervention in every case? Does Satan have a strategy in this age of grace, this dispensation, this economy of the grace of God? Does he have a strategy? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we think, because of this verse, for fighting the demons in the air who are coming down and doing all these things. That's not the spiritual wickedness in high places that we're fighting against, folks, because he doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk about bringing every thought into captivity. And so Satan's game since it's not with flesh and blood today, uh, the king was born, the king was crucified, he, de he defeated Satan in that crucifixion. Satan would have us think the battle's not won. The battle has not been won. You are now part of the battle. And if you don't do these things, stop doing these other things and start doing these other things, God's not going to accept you and be happy with you. Satan doesn't want mankind to know the victory has already been won. You, you know the passage where it says he, he took captivity captive and gave gifts to men? How did he take captivity captive? Well, the Bible goes on to say, if you read the passage in the context there, men were all their lives subject to a fear of death in the grave. But the Son of God rose again. So man doesn't have to be all his life in fear of death in the grave anymore. Those who were captive to that fear of death in the grave are no longer captive by it because God himself, through his visible manifestation, Jesus Christ, took care of it and rose again from the dead. So God has intervened all along the way. So Satan's tactic today is confusion and incomprehension because Satan didn't give up. The battle that takes place, and, and, and Satan knew where it would lead, takes place between the ears of man in this dispensation of grace. The battle today is a battle for the mind of men. This is why what I call the doctrine of thinking is such an important doctrine that Paul talks about. Understanding, knowledge, wisdom, uh, the eyes of your understanding. Uh, Paul's epistles are filled with doctrine of understanding because confusion over what God is doing today and who we are in Christ and how we come to be in Christ. Confusion over what we have to do to gain God's favor today. How can we get this God who in our thinking becomes angry with us one day and then happy with us on Sunday after we walk out of our uh, building with our big Schofields or whatever Bible we're carrying in our hands thinking we've done God a favor today. We've, we've put in our pound of flesh for God as we've worshiped Him in our service this hour. When Paul calls our um, giving ourselves to others in love, our reasonable service, but that word service is the same word in the Greek translated worship. So if we think we come to worship, and we do, our worship is not just here an hour on Sunday mornings. Our worship, our reasonable worship to God is our service to one another uh, every day of our lives. A love has replaced law. We will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, not for heaven or hell, but by our work of faith, our, our patience of hope, and by our labor of love. And what's the greatest of all three? Love for believers. So we will be judged. Some will suffer the loss of reward, and some will have reward. Most of us, me includes, I don't care if I'm the janitor sweeping out the, <laughs> the hallway of where the rewards are. I just want to be there. But at that time, your mind won't be the mind you have now. At the time of that judgment, the most you want, the most 
longing of your heart in that day will be to bring glory and praise to the one who got you there, <laughs> the one who saved you by his grace. And so the degree to which we um, serve God today, the degree to which we honor him today with our lives is the degree to which we will bring that kind of, of uh, glory to him at the judgment seat of Christ. So in a sense, we're building our own glorification factory, but not of ourselves, of him. Because then it won't, we won't want it to point to us when we have that mind. We'll want it to go to him, not to us. And so it's not about getting a bigger house and a better street and a nicer neighborhood in heaven. It's all, the rewards are going to go to him. And we find out that a lot of the things we did, we did know. Most of the things we do, we do knowingly and willingly. The love we don't show willingly and knowingly as we serve self rather than others. Easy to love our friends, very difficult to love our enemies. Um, easy to love those who agree with us, those who take our side, those who, with who, oh, well, I take that stand, so. Easy to love those folks. Not easy to love the folks with whom you disagree. Not easy to love the folks with whom um, you have bitterness and resentment in your hearts, and we all do. None of us are any different that way because we're in this fleshly tent right now. We can strive to do better, but I believe, this is 1 Kurt 3.16, so you can throw it out if you don't like it. I believe at the judgment seat of Christ, when our true motivations are brought to the light of God, uh, to Christ himself, who's able to look inside us and judge and really evaluate our motivations, our, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know them? Uh, a, a great passage to show we don't even know our own motivations. Our pride nature hides our true motivations from self. So when we do things, do we do it for self? Do we do it to elevate me, to make me look better uh, in the eyes of others, uh, to make me loved by others and accepted and uh, forgiven and all that? Do we do it for self or do we really do it for him? I believe at the judgment seat of Christ we're going to know. And we're going to then really praise him because we'll realize we're there with nothing of ourselves to have been, to have to have given us any value to be there. It'll all go to him. Everything will go to him. Where will we want? And then I believe God doesn't stop there. It's like we talk about Mother Earth and uh, it's like God the Father board. Not the Mother board, but the Father board. Like a computer in a sense. If the mindset of saved humanity can be downloaded like that into the mind of the Father board, God the Father, <laughs> Um, so that we know and he knows why we did what we did, what we did, how we did it, when we did it. It's not one person standing in line after another, in my opinion, waiting. Our mindsets will be down. He'll know it. We'll know he knows it. And he'll reflect it back to us so that we know what he knows about us. But I don't think when he hits the delete key, gone. Never going into heaven is a testimony of what we thought we brought him. I don't think he stops with the delete key. I think he hits the fill key, key like a paint program. And he's going to show each of us, I believe, what we did for him that we didn't realize we were doing for him. All the places that he used us to accomplish his purpose and his will with somebody we might not even think we were benefiting to start with. And we're going to be rewarded for those things we didn't even realize we were doing, he was doing through us. And he's going to reward us for that? Where would we want those rewards to go? At his feet, not at ours. The Apostle Paul said, there's one glory of the sun, glory used synonymously as, as brightness, 
There's one brightness of the sun, there's a different brightness of the stars, and a totally different brightness of the moon, and such is the resurrection of the dead. The degree to which we honor him and serve him in this life as we serve others will be the degree to which we will have that glory reflected back at him in our resurrected life. And so some people may be a greater beacon of, 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 of glory to him and some people lesser, but the fireman's not going to wish he was a policeman and the policeman's not going to wish he was a doctor. I think heaven's going to be heaven for everybody. Um, and we're going to honor the one that did it. The operation today of Satan is between the ears of man. It's in the mind of man. As he wants us to be confused, think God's not on our side, that we're not who we are really in Christ, as he tells us, and incomprehending what he has for us. This is why Paul's epistles are full of what I call the doctrine of thinking. It's a mind game of Satan today. And Satan's present-day battle plan, operation, confusion, incomprehension. Discredit the message first. Pervert the gospel of Christ through men's imaginations and contrary doctrines, as Paul calls them. Diminish the accomplishments of the crosswork of Christ. Is Christ's crosswork being diminished, his accomplishments being diminished in this age of grace? If I say he died for our sins and prayed and rose again, but the sins are still there, we've got to get them forgiven, am I diminishing what the cross accomplished? It's all around. It's all around as we take away from what Christ accomplished when he came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When he had by himself purged our sins, the Bible tells us, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is he sitting today? Did he purge that issue of sins from the table of God's justice? Not just for believers, but for everybody who ever lived. But there's a twofold coin. Taking the sins away from man and off the table of God's justice doesn't put the righteousness of God onto you. To have God's righteousness freely imputed to your account, you have to believe that Jesus Christ took the sins away at Calvary. Satan has ministers. It's all a mind game today. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. They'll be teaching righteousness that comes by way of performance. So they have a counterfeit gospel. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him to you be anathema. Have nothing to do with him. So what are we to value? What are we to look at today? The gospel being proclaimed. Because we're to proclaim the gospel of Christ. We're ambassadors of that message. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, here we have divine intervention against Satan's tactic in this dispensation. Casting down imaginations. Those are the strongholds. Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The strongholds are in men's minds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every what? Thought. thought to the obedience of Christ. The thought life is where it is today, folks. It's the thought life. 
All things for God who hath reconciled, that's past tense. He's already reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and he's given us to us that ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the entire world unto himself, not counting, charging, reckoning, imputing their trespasses passes unto them. And he's committed us to that, that word of reconciliation. So we're not to go out and tell people, God loves you, he wants to forgive you, he's just waiting to forgive you and he will if you'll just come to the cross for that forgiveness. Uh-uh. The cross accomplished it. It's not a sin issue. It's a son issue today. What will we do with the son who paid for all of our sins? He paid for them by, he took the punishment for my sins and your sins and the sins of mankind. He took that punishment and he bore it himself. Why? So we won't take that punishment for our sins. No one will be in hell, as you'll hear me say over and over, paying for sins. Christ paid for and the Father accepted the payment as being fully satisfactory. That's the word propitiation. They'll be in hell because they rejected that their sins were taken away at Calvary. And they want to do like the Israelites wanted to do with their forgiveness system and keep getting forgiveness for those sins over and over and over and over again. Should we stop praying? No. Pray without ceasing. Should we stop confessing our sins? I don't believe so. God already knows about it. But should we change the flavor of our prayer from please forgive me for that sin I committed when our belief to be saved in the gospel of Christ is he already took it away? What should we do in our prayer life? Change the flavor of the prayer. Thank you. I sinned against you because I did something that caused your son to have to hang on that cross of Calvary taking my place and my punishment for what I just did. Thank you. Thank you so much for you looking at him to have resolved the issue that stood between me and you. Thank you for your son dying for my sin. I thank you that you've not counted that against me. You counted that against him. What a glorious God you are. And what a marvelous Savior we serve. So we'll end it there. There's a couple more tactics, but we'll end it there and we'll pick it up again in a later study. Uh, let's give God all the, all the praise and all the glory and all the thanks for what he's done for us through his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today for your love for us. We thank you that when we were enemies, you still loved us. If anyone ever doubted your love, all he has to do is look at the Bible that says Christ died for all of our sins. If he died for anyone's sins, he had to love that person. So we are loved, greatly loved. Even when we were enemies, you didn't love us because we promised something or committed to not do some other things. You, you loved us based on our simply taking you at your word. What you tell us is true. And you loved us. We, you loved us anyway. And we thank you that that love found a way to answer your justice where our sins were concerned. And that answer was the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for him. Thank you that the issue now is being joined to his resurrection life and being adopted into your family simply by but believing that our sins were gone at Calvary. Thank you for so many things and thank you again for the folks that come out today to study your word with me. We thank you for all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.